In life, it's not what we say we do that matters. It's what we do. And that's why this podcast is dedicated to those that have chosen not to make excuses as to why they can't. In fact, it's dedicated to the stories of those that have decided that even in the face of adversity, that they want to show the world that they can. From the ordinary to the extraordinary and everything in between, join us in the conversation of what it takes to lead a no excuse life. My name is Jamie Clark and this is the No Excuse Podcast, forward slash webcast, vlog, thing. You'll get the point. Now before we move on, if you're just consuming this podcast as an audio, I must remind you that this is actually by default a video podcast. So if you haven't already, I invite you to hop onto the website at jamieclark.tv forward slash podcast, or alternatively, you can visit YouTube and search for us on No Excuse Podcast, where you'll be able to see this and all future episodes. Now, not just am I excited to be able to introduce this episode because this is episode number one, but I'm also excited to be able to introduce our first guest and my good friend. He's a former Royal Marines commando, a former member of UK Special Forces, and not just is he the sort of guy that you want in your corner when things go wrong, but he's also a kind-hearted family man who just happens to have led a life that most want to write books about. So this is episode number one, and this is Tony Hayes. So Tony Hayes, welcome to Podcast Land. Thank you. This is what it looks like. Somebody that's never been on a podcast before. So much more glamorous than the thought. Well, this is, this is all for you. <laughs> Trust me, this, is, this was just a bare workshop until they knew Tony was turning up and then we had this arrive and this, this thing arrived. And it's pretty fair, the Land Rover is awesome. Isn't it just? Well, so, so for reference, this Land Rover is actually for sale, but we'll talk more about that later on in the podcast. But um, the, the, yeah, the owner is very proud of this, hand-built from the ground up. It's, it's made to look like an identical um, copy of the Land Rover on James Bond, just for reference. Wow. Um, hugely thankful that you're here today. I will say, I've got to reiterate this, this is your first time on a podcast. Yes. This is the first time I've ever hosted a podcast. <laughs> and it's the first time that the producer's ever produced a podcast. So, I mean, nothing can go wrong today. <laughs> we are on, like, we're on set, right? this is perfect. Nothing's going to go wrong. How are these lights for you? Because I know you're a bit delicate. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, I should have put sunscreen on. No. But- well, you're going to need it <laughs> by the end of this. Uh, so, Tony, look, thank you ever so much. This is the very first episode, and I could not be any happier that it's you as the first guest. I'm honoured, genuinely. Oh, well, oh, well, <coughs> vice versa. So, what we want to do today, that the whole ethos of this podcast is to talk to people like yourselves whose stories, I think, and mindsets and achievements um, in, in sort of encapsulate the idea of what it is to live a no-excuse life. And I thought I would ask a question at the end of the podcast. I'm going to do it at the very start. I'm going to kick it off by actually asking you now, what do you think it is to live a no-excuse life? Okay. So I have thought about this. Um, so I didn't ask you this before the podcast, obviously. This, you weren't prepared for this. So for me, personally, is to have gone through things in, 
you know, whatever stage of your life, and to to really you know crack on and still achieve the things that you aspire to, uh, without you know using it as an excuse. Um, so, look, without going into too much detail, because I know you're going to ask um, ask questions. Um, but in my younger years, with uh, living in a big inner city in London, um, you know, I did have some hair-raising moments and actually cheated death uh, on on one occasion, um, and it did cause me to actually. Uh, I didn't get any help afterwards, and by the time I was 19 years old. Had considered taking my own life because of the stress of it all, um, but it didn't hold me back. I didn't use it as an excuse. Once I picked myself up, uh, I still managed to aspire to a lifelong dream of um, joining the special forces. Yeah, and uh, I made it happen. I, I didn't didn't use it as an excuse. Fast forwarding, same book, different cover type of sketch, where joining. The military, getting into the special forces, uh, something someone had said to me, a really good analogy, is about the, the water and glass way of looking at it. So when I joined the military, my glass was already half full. And with uh, free combat tours, and don't get me wrong at all, one thing I want to make clear is I could have had a tougher time in the military, and there were guys that had much more of a, a tougher time. Mm. You know, I've, I've still got all of my limbs. Um, sure. But at the end of the day, because I was going in with my glass already half full, um, with what's happened in um, previous years, it didn't really take that much for me to really start feeling the effects of, um, of stress and, and, and burning out. Uh, but again, on leaving the military, I haven't used that as an excuse. As tough as a time as I've been through, you know, I've picked myself back up, and I'm still in the process, if I'd be perfectly honest, of, of picking myself up. Mm. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not using things as an excuse, and I'm still forging ahead with another lifelong dream, which is to have a successful business that, you know, can help make a change and make a difference. Uh, and that's where I am now. It's really interesting to hear you, you talk about the fact that this isn't just something that you develop because... You know, we haven't introduced properly yet, but of course you're a former Royal Marines Commando. Yeah. You're a former member of UK Special Forces. Yeah. Um, you've, you've done private contracting within maritime security as well, which we can talk about. And also now you've set about establishing a new business, the founder of a brand new product, which we'll talk about. This is what's hanging in, in, the, in, the, photo, in the video here. Yeah. Um, but one thing I don't want to breeze over, because I think it's really interesting and people will have questions about it, is that in the, the younger Tony, what would that, that, that Tony of his early teens, what would he have said to that question? How would he have answered that, what is it to live a no excuse life? Were you sort of carefree? Um, talk about that if you don't mind, because I think that's a, a part of the story that maybe you haven't had a chance to talk about, but I think it's so, so important to everything else we're going to talk about today. The younger Tony was just as passionate as I am now with, you know, if, if I get something in my head, and, and, and I want to do it. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes I, I can um, be blinkered and that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, fo being focused is one thing, but losing sight of, you know, what's going on elsewhere can, can be quite dangerous as well as it can be quite good in some respects. Um, it needs to be handled 
quite carefully and needs to be, that comes with self-awareness. So the younger Tony um, wasn't that self-aware at the time. So um, I did get into trouble. Uh, how, how old were you at that point? So the school that I went to, you couldn't really call a school. <laughs> it was more of a battleground and the, the pupils ran the school. So I quite quickly went down wrong paths. So to, to think of something as grown up as, uh, you know, a, a no excuses lifestyle and to um, be aware of that doesn't matter what happens to you, it's no excuse, yeah. you know, get on, do what you need to do. Um, I was, I wouldn't say carefree. I had morals, you know, I respected my elders. Uh, I was brought up right in that respect. But I still kind of got into the wrong crowd and was, was getting led down, down the wrong way. It was very difficult to, to not do that in, you know, the same as any big inner city um, would be like for, for, for working class. And is that with hindsight now, you can look back and say that's what happened, but at the time, were you blinkered to what was going on around me? You, you were part of a gang, I imagine, or a group? And I was never part of a gang. So I was, I was never blinkered in such as that I didn't know right from wrong. Um, I was never part of a gang. But that ultimately didn't stop me getting targeted mm. by one. Um, I, I think it was just more a case of a young lad in a city, and you, you know, I, I, I was a bit of a bad boy in, in some sense sometimes. Yeah. And did you have an influence in your life at that point? Was your father a big influence to your parents? So my father was was an immensely strong man. He, he had a checkered past, so he had, um, you know, hugely inspirational. And he was a, a boxing champion, so he was a professional boxer. His career was cut short, unfortunately, um, due to arthritis in, in his knees. Um, but he, he got quite high up. He, he fought three times on BBC One at the Royal Albert Hall. Because his career got cut short, it's that typical type of story, really where he then found himself with quite a lot of time on his hands, started off working on the doors, again, got into you know, the wrong circles, yeah. um, and ended up doing 12 years in prison uh, for uh, using a shotgun um, and, and shooting someone, essentially. And 12 years is what he spent, so he must have wow. got you know, Good, about 15, 20, 16, yeah. exactly, yeah. And, and how old were you during that time? I wasn't born, so right, this okay. was before me. But uh, it is, he was always a bit of a, a, a wheeler dealer, mm. if you like. So even though he wasn't really into crime as such when we were born, by then he'd completely changed his life around. He'd met my mum. My mum had whipped him into shape. <laughs> like they do. Yeah, like they do. And, and he had his own building company. So he, he, he'd moved away from you know, anything dodgy that he yeah. was doing in the past. But there's still that character uh, that, that you kind of feed off of. Um, so I don't quite know where I'm going with it, but for, for me personally, the younger Tony, uh, I, I would still get up to things. Yeah. You know, I wasn't straight laced, but that's the life you were, that yeah, you're in. Was was joining the Royal Marines something that you were thinking of at that point? Now, apparently, my first words were military-related, <laughs> whether it be army. You know, from from day one, I wanted to be in the military. 
and that never changed. It's just when I came of age, I was already starting to get into running around the streets, yeah. getting into trouble, um, and being silly with my mates. So the next thing you go, uh, the next thing that happens is you know you're 19, 20 years old, thinking, oh my god, you know if I if I don't, that time's probably passed now. Mm. Then you're 24, 25. It's like, yeah, even though I can't get it out of my head and wanting to have joined the military and be specifically in the Royal Marines, um, that window's closing quick, quickly. So, yeah, it's looking back on it now, that may have contributed to, to the motivation of, yeah. of joining the Marines. So I know, because we, we have spoken before, in fact, I can go as far as saying that the, the hour-long chat that we were going to have in your garden I do recall lasting almost five hours, and that was why I had sunburn. Just got over yeah, whilst you guys sat conveniently under the umbrella. Um, so you I thought know, I was trying to move it to you, but actually I was moving it away. You were every single time. Yeah, uh, it was a test. Yeah, I know what you like, but I, I know then from that that you you did join the Royal Marines later than most would in life. But yes, what I think what's really important for people to know and to hear about is the fact that prior to that, prior to that that start of your life, you, you know, you ran a business prior to that, but. You, before then, yeah. you were involved in, in what well, was an attack on you, wasn't it? It was, and it's, it, it's funny how in later on in life, when big incidents happen, you, sometimes you find out things and it's like pieces of a jigsaw that then come into your head years and years afterwards. And it was only about two or three years ago that I actually made the connection the, the reason the attack had happened was because of a fight I had at school. Okay. And the boys' cousins took a dislike to it, all completely unbeknown to me. Um, so when the boy that I had, had a fight with, because I saw him bullying someone, and that, that gives you a sense of the younger Tony. I, I was very, um, sort of had strong moles in, in that way. And one of the things that I'd got in my head was that I don't like bullies because my dad didn't like bullies. Sure. So it's like, right, that's how I'm going to be. And if I ever saw any bullying, it didn't matter how big they were or, you know, who it was. Um, I, I would say, you know, <laughs> don't do that, you know, and I would stand up for, for the person that was being bullied. And a lot of time it got me into fights. This one particular time, um, the, when I asked the lad, look, that's not on, leave, leave the boy alone. He's, clearly doesn't want to you know, get involved in um, this and he's backing down, you know, basically being bullied. He just squared right up to me and was offering me out to fight and screaming in my face. So I hit him and he backed down straight away as most bullies do. And he must, uh, the, the rest of it is unknown to me how it all came about, but I can imagine that he mm. might have had older brothers and you know, he had to explain why he had this big lump on his face. Um, and that's what kicked off quite a big gang. So his brothers must have been connected in some way to a gang and then cousins got involved. Um, and they caught up with me in the local shopping centre. I was with one other, one other friend uh, walking through the local shopping centre during daytime. What sort of time is this? About two, two, three o'clock in the afternoon, maybe even a little bit earlier. So, so there, quite, there were people around. Oh, mums with with pushchairs, yeah, full on, quite, quite busy. You know, people milling around doing their shopping. 
Um, and as we're walking through, because we used it as a cut through to get to a friend's house, so from where we were coming from, you could enter one side of the shopping centre, walk all the way through, go out the, the rear exit doors, and then a mate of mine lived just over the road. And it saved walking all the way around the shopping centre. So that's all we were doing. And uh, I can remember, sort of, as we walked in, seeing something that didn't quite look right. And as we got a bit closer, we realised it was uh, a line of young lads from one side of the wide, as you can imagine, a wide walkway through a shopping centre, lined up from one side to the other. Literally lined up. So mums and other people and old people shopping were having to try and find a space and squeeze through them. That was for me. Uh, I just didn't enter into my head that that was a net waiting for me to walk through. So on their search for me, walking around and asking people that may have known me, they must have got wind of the, well, you know, he comes through here every now and again. So as, as I've got closer, uh, I thought to myself, and I was only with one other friend, I said to him, look, we can't, we can't back down. And again, I didn't realise that they were from there for me. So we can't back down, that's the worst thing we can do, because if we, if we get seen, we're turning around and walking the other way because we're scared to go through them. They're gonna know that. Um, so I thought, right, you know, time to grab hold of your balls. Don't be silly, because there's a lot of them. So I'm not gonna try and start a fight. It's just, you know, try and stand up tall, find a gap. I turned my shoulders and tried to slip through. But as I was walking through, there was a bit of commotion where things were getting said um, and it was negative things as I was walking through. But I thought, I'm not gonna stoop down to it and just carried on walking. And I was hoping that was it. As we got a bit further into the shopping center and I was looking around behind my shoulder, I could just see these heads popping up every now and again in the crowd. So I said to my mate, we're being followed. Uh, you know, what do you want to do? Should we get on our toes now? And he was like, no, let's, let's dive into CNAs. We can show my age here now. I just like those CNAs. <laughs> Cheers. An old clothing shop. And it was the last shop before the exit doors on the left. And my mate said, let's dive in here and hopefully they won't see us. So I found myself sort of hiding behind some of the, the clothes rails. The security guard was obviously, mm, what's going on? So we knew we wouldn't have had long in there. And uh, I just left it for as long as possible, hoping that they'd walk past. So we left it as long as we thought was needed. It was like, right, we, we can't stay in here all day. So let's go for it. And we knew the exit doors were right there. All right, as soon as we get out, as long as we can get out of those exit doors, if they are on us, we just run. But we didn't even get that chance. The second we stopped, stepped over the threshold to go back out into the walkway of the shopping centre, was surrounded. Straight away, my mate was pulled away from me so that he wasn't with me, so they separated us straight away and a big semicircle was created. And my friend was trying to reach in to grab me, to pull me out and say, right, leave him alone. But they, they'd maced him in the face and, and pushed him away. So it left me standing there with my back against the wall and semicircled by this gang. And again, my dad's voice kept coming into my head where if you ever get into trouble, then, you know, try not to have your back against the wall. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought, shit, that's, that's a big thing gone wrong. But at the same time, I knew that there wasn't anyone behind me. So I didn't mind that. Uh, the other thing was to, if you need to, fight as aggressively as you need to, to be able to make way, to get away as quickly as you can. So that was in my head as well. Also not to back down and, and try not to show any fear. So that was the first port call, trying to go through an escalation system because if that would have worked, then great. So I started off with that first and said, look guys, what's, you know, stood up tall, what, what's the problem here? I, it's, it's one of me, as it's only two of us, uh, I, you know, we're, we're obviously not gonna be interested in, in, in fighting. Look how many of you are, there are. You know, what is, what is it that's supposed to have happened anyway? And just as I was finishing that sentence, the punches started coming in. Um, so it kicked off straight away. And as I was trying to throw punches out, just flailing and doing anything I could to, to try and get out and run away, as that was happening, the knife was, was being uh, used on my left side here. And it was a short sword. It was one of those canes, you know, where you pull the short sword out of the cane, but the handle, it was one of those like walking cane handles that, that come over. So he was able to hold it like a gun, which is what aided him in him being able to yeah. stab him nine, nine times. Um, the, so it was three times in the thigh, three times just in the lower back on the um, top of the leg area here. And they clasped up here as, as three wounds because it went through my arm, out the other end into my chest, um, puncturing my lung and scratching my heart on the way in. And, and that was it, lights out. Because nine, nine holes with the blood gushing out. I had, I had time to sort of turn around and I knew something was going on and went to push that person away because he was on my blind side. And next, and I was on the floor unconscious. Were you aware that you'd been stabbed or? I knew, you know, it's strange because I didn't see the knife, but I knew something was happening. I knew, I knew I wasn't just getting punched, but my body knew that something was happening. Sure, it's, right. it's weird, weird to explain. Um, but it just sort of, you know, like I say, it's weird to explain, just in, kind of in the back of your head. But what you're thinking there and then is, well, you know, he's, he's just trying to, to fight and punch me on, on this side. Um, it wasn't until I woke up, so I'd, I went unconscious within a matter of seconds because of the, the flow of blood. Um, so as I hit the deck, they must have all ran off because when I woke up, um, it was my friend beside me trying to take the belt off to use as a tourniquet around my leg. Now, because three of the wounds were around the back and, and up here, I only saw the wounds on my thigh. So I thought, okay, cool, this, you know, they just stabbed me in, in my thigh. Um, so I went to get back up and run out of doors because I thought, well, the fight's not finished. <laughs> Stupidly. Well, what were you thinking of doing at that point? Just to, to carry, exactly, just complete stupidness. Um, to, to maybe, you know, just carry on you weren't finished. I, I weren't finished yeah. because by then they'd got me fighting. So I thought, well, you know, come on, let's mm. just keep going. And luckily my friend was there and turned me back around and said, you ain't going nowhere, mate. 
took me back to CNAs, which was literally just there anyway, you know, we were out just outside CNAs, and uh, walked me back in, sort of helping me walk back in. By this time, it was a river of blood. So from where I hit the deck, it was literally, there was a slight little incline where it, where it was, the, the, the ground was going up towards the exit doors, and it was flowing down, and it was about a metre wide. Um, and as we walked into CNAs, my friend said to, to the security guard, my friend's been stabbed, please help. And the first thing the security guard said was, get back out of shop, you're bleeding all over the clothes. Seriously, <laughs> you're bleeding over the clothes. So he turned me back around and I sat back down, or he sat me down just out on, against the wall outside of the shop. And by then it was starting to get difficult to breathe. Uh, because of the punctured lung and it was starting to get a bit sort of dizzy head from, from the loss of blood. But um, again, psychologically, I didn't feel too bad because I wasn't aware of the other wounds. You know, I couldn't, because I had a jacket on and I wasn't sort of looking down there either and I wasn't in really any pain. Uh, which, again, I just thought it was on my leg. And uh, the ambulance came and there was a policeman on scene actually that came first and his white top had turned red when the ambulance came to take over he was in bits he, he, he was kneeling down with he, he was actually crying um, because it was a horrendous sight he's there in mind i was 15 16 years old at that time and he, and he thought this lad is not going to make it to hospital um, straight away the ambulance could see that that was the situation as well didn't bother messing about, they'd done a quick survey, cut my trousers off, took my jacket off, realised the extent of what's going on, um, got me on the stretcher, straight out into, into the ambulance and called me in as a DOA, as a dead on arrival. Bear in mind, Lewisham Hospital was 30 seconds away from um, the shopping centre, yet they still called me in as, as a possible dead on arrival. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it kind of gets a bit emotional as well, thinking about it, because they, the, 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 the hospital, my mum worked in, in Lewisham Hospital, so she was a nurse working casualty at the time, and they had to sort of get a hold of her and pull her to the side and say, well, Janet, you know, you're going to have to come off duty because your son's coming in and he's, you know, in a very bad way. So that's sort of an emotional thing to, to think back on as well. And yeah, I, I died three times on the operating table. Very lucky to, to survive it. And did, did your mum come to see you during that time or did she stay away? She was there, she must have been immensely strong. I could see that obviously she was crying and upset but she was you know, keeping it together. Because um, I was still conscious at this time in, 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 in trauma, in, in, the, um, in the initial area that I got taken into, because they had to, to do a chest strain, so they had to cut, cut me open. They, I can remember the guy saying at the time, he's like, we're not going to have time to, to give you local anaesthetic. We've got to make a little incision and get our finger in just to widen the hole to put the tube in for your chest strain. And I can remember thinking at the time, not actually being worried about what I was hearing, and actually thinking, why are you telling me? Just get on with it. 
Um, and apparently it's meant to be one of the most painful procedures if you don't have anaesthetic. But I think because I'd lost so much blood at that time, I wasn't really feeling much at all. Um, so all of that was going on. My mum coming, I could see her upset. And my older brother coming as well. And I could tell that he must have been told by my mum that you need to go in and see him because it's probably the last time you've gone wow. to see him. Because I could see how he, he really was not holding it together. He was uncontrollably crying. And, uh, and basically came in to say, to say goodbye. Um, and... Uh, that's, that's, that's the last memory I've, I've got it, uh, of it. Apparently from people that were in the hallway outside, other people that was in the hallway outside, and from my brother and my mum. It was at that point that I started convulsing and I was nearly lifting off of the table. So that was me crashing. And that was me dying at that point. And apparently they just started shouting and screaming. Nurses and, and doctors started shouting and screaming for everyone to move out of the way. And I just got wheeled off at a massive rate of knots to obviously be resuscitated. I think that was the first time I died, and then died t uh, twice more, to another two times whilst being operated on. I can't even imagine. I mean, if you, if you think about how, how young you were, what would be interesting to me to hear would be, from that point when you came out of that, you've obviously survived, what pulled you through those first few months? I mean, how did you recover from that, not just physically, but, but mentally, because that's a huge, that's a huge instant to have lived through. Did you just think that you were lucky and that, that you know, that kick-started positivity in your life, or did it bring about any form of, you know, was it, it knocked your confidence? What, what, what did you feel? It massively knocked my confidence. Um, I didn't get any help for it, and I don't know why. It's still something that, you know, I, I haven't asked my mum, honest, to be honest with you. Um, where if something like that happens nowadays to a 15, 16 year old, then they're, they're yeah. getting psychological help afterwards. You know? It supports that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, it didn't have any of that. So when, once I got out of hospital, which seemed like a lifetime, um, I was in ICU for quite a while and then on the ward for quite a while and with, you know, waiting for, for the wounds to, to heal up sufficiently. And I had to have um, sort of drains on the wounds as well, and they had to be periodically drained because of the fluid build-up, so on and so forth. So it took quite a while to actually get home. And there was still quite a long period of recovery once I was at home as well, with learning how to sort of walk on, on the leg again, um, because the muscle deterioration, something I still suffer from now actually, because you know you, you, you end up compensating. You've got, you can visibly see where the muscle doesn't grow back properly on the lower part of my quad. Um, so it took a while to, to, to recover and I can vividly remember the first time that I went back out again and it was I experienced more fear then than I did actually during the attack or before the attack and realizing I was being followed and so on and so forth um, and it was things like getting on the bus for the first time and there being a, a young group of kids behind me who were a bit rowdy and I was convinced I was going to get stabbed again. Literally convinced. And I, and I was so paralysed by fear that I couldn't even turn because every fibre of my body wanted to turn around and check if they're coming, um, coming up behind me. And if anyone's experienced real fear in that way, you taste it. It's like a metallic taste in your mouth. And again, yeah, got, just got no, no help from it. So 
that massively knocked my confidence. I was always quite a confident, confident lad in that way. Was there anyone around you, or was there anyone sort of the pinnacle in your life at that point who, who helped you through that, who helped that confidence rise again? Maybe my dad in his own way, but it's, it wasn't, it didn't, looking back on it now, it's not the way that things have been done nowadays. Mm. You know, the worst thing you can say to someone who's having difficulties is man up. And that's kind of the undertone that it had. I was never specifically told that, but that's, that's how it, it seemed. Now, I can remember being in America um, due to my mum with her work as a nurse um, in Atlanta, which was the gang capital of the world at the time. And again, this was only a couple of years after the attack. And I can remember sitting in the car with my older brother and my dad in the front, and I, and I think we were waiting to pick my mum up, I can't remember what it was, but I could see the gang members walking up and down the street. And they may, some of them may not have even been gang members, it was my mm. brain, you know, bigging everything up. And I was shitting myself. And even though I was with my dad, an ex-professional boxer, and my brother, my older brother, who could handle himself as well, um, my older brother said that he was gonna get out of the car and, and walk down the road to see exactly where it was that my mum was coming out from, from where we were picking her up. And I, I can remember thinking, don't, what, what are you doing? And I was getting frustrated with my dad. Why are we just sitting here? And I could tell that they were getting frustrated with me. Because if that attack hadn't have happened, I probably wouldn't have, I'd have been fine with it. So it almost distorted your perception of what was going on around you, wasn't it? There was a, yeah. there was a falsity to that, that, that yeah. yeah, what you could see. But instead of having a little bit of understanding and, well, okay, yeah, I might be able to see where, you know, where Tony might be having a bit of a problem with this, I could feel their frustration that I was scared. I'm interested, I'll come back to this, I really want to talk about um, some stages after that in the Royal Marines, but you talk about the, maybe back then, the idea of saying, look, man up face these big problems you've just been through. We're not going to give you any sympathy, just man up. Yeah. Um, just fast forward quickly to your experiences within the military and even units like you know, the SBS, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Is that still prevalent today, that, that man up attitude? Because you'd, you'd expect on the outside, that must be. Or is, it, is there now more, certainly after Afghanistan and Iraq, is there more of an understanding of I mental health and, and trying to pull people through things? Absolutely. And uh, which is a good thing, I, I, even though I say in my day, you know, because in relative terms it still wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, How long ago was it from there? Yeah. So I've been out what, six, six years. Okay. Six. Yeah, about six years. Um, seven years maybe. And but even then, I it was only like the last year where I was in, probably not even the last year. It was from when I left. It was only just starting to change. So the time that I was in, it was still of the opinion that if the, the shrink was coming in, so when you come back from, from operations, everyone's got to take their turn with, with talking to yeah. someone. And it would very quickly go around the squadrons. That, look, just remember that when you're sitting in there, don't say too much. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and, no, I understand. You know, so it, it, it didn't matter what issues you might have been trying to deal with from operations, you were already... Of the, of the mind of the, you know, yeah, you know, not going to talk about that shit. Um, 
and it's completely it's very different now it's very different so is it, is it more different as well that you'd be more comfortable to talk about your feelings because I can give an example, but not on the same level as yourself, but certainly on the, in the police firearms teams, you would have regular medicals where you'd go and sit down in, in front of a doctor, and I think sometimes a counsellor, producer might be able to tell me, counsellor, um, and never once did I truthfully sit in front of her or him and be honest. I'd probably answer every single question as they're completely fine, everything yeah. fine at home, everything's fine. And they're expecting that, I appreciate that. Yeah. But it's different when you're operating within the world that you're operating in because the, the pressure was, was far worse, I think, for more prolonged periods of time. And I think maybe, you can correct me if you're wrong, but the group of people you work around are very driven, focused, alpha people. Yes. They don't necessarily want to admit weakness. They don't want to be seen to admit that. So has it even changed within the very teams themselves, not just the support you're given? What about those on the ground? Are you all now more willing to talk to one another? If you and I were working with each other, would, would you be willing to open up about something? I'm a crap listener, so maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's difficult for me to answer. There's a few things I can comment on there, but it's, it's difficult for me to fully answer because I'm not in the teams anymore. I'm not in the, squadron, in the squadrons. Um, so it's difficult for me to say on sort of how uh, the culture is in that sense now. Um, I, I should imagine it, um, what, what I do know is it's still very much an alpha male type environment. Mm. Um, and that type of environment that you would expect that is full of blokes that are just switched on and driven you know um, so it, it, it does sort of you know make for an environment that would be difficult to talk about emotions in that way yeah. because it's you know we've got to be top of top of the game here um, and you know it's, it's very competitive in that way to, to be a um, switched on operator so it would it would be very difficult to take time out or to find someone that you could confide in if you were having issues now the SBSA I know have made leaps and bounds so that's the association arm the, the charity arm of, of the SBSA the SBS which do fantastic things. And there is actually things that have been put in place now. And I think even a building that's dedicated to guys that if they want to go there and talk to anyone um, about things that might be bothering them, then they can. So that- And that would be confidential, I imagine. And, uh, I should imagine so, yeah, of, of course. Um, so, so the thing, there are things in place a hell of a lot more, but it would be silly not to because from from when I left to, to now, the, the suicide rate, um, even though, because it's, it's such an interesting thing, and, and when you think about, like we were always talking about earlier today, or someone I think it might have been we were talking about with the Falklands, mm. with, you know, there were more suicides over guys having problems in the Falklands than there were that actually died due to combat in the Falklands. So it's not a new thing, but I don't know, maybe it's the age of, of social media and, and the media, that, um, that it quite quickly came out as to how many service people with the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan um, are actually, you know, committing suicide. And that's because, you know, generally speaking, PTSD is more a term that we hear now spoken about. Yeah. And it's probably more accepted that people now are, are experiencing that, and not necessarily even just in a war zone. You know, yeah. as, as an example, even from a law enforcement background, if you look at the United States, I know very recently I saw a survey where 
um, in the NYPD alone, over a 12-month period, over 200 officers took their own lives because yeah. they themselves couldn't just deal with some of the pressure, pressures and stress around, I think, maybe a working environment wasn't ideal. So I think I'm, I'm really glad to, th to think that PTSD now is something that anyone can talk about, alpha male or not, yeah. female, it doesn't matter what background you are, because I think you can experience and, and live with PTSD from, uh, for all different reasons. It doesn't yeah. have to be just an extreme one. I know, you know, I've, I've met with people who've been involved in serious road traffic accidents. In fact, police officers who themselves have been involved in the investigation of traffic accidents, being the first on scene and seeing horrific injuries. And that yeah. has a compound effect, has a knock-on effect that a lot of people can't deal with. Yeah. Um, so I'll hold you there. We'll come back to that because one thing I want to do is bring us back to just prior to doing the Royal Marines. Um, you've now lived through an incident which was stabbed numerous times. There's obviously going to be a knock-on effect emotionally to you, maybe not dealing with, with it fully, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so what happens from that point, you know, late teens now, up until when you joined the Royal Marines? Which, how old were you when you joined the Marines? So I was 25. So in my mind, because I can, I can admit to this, a bit of a man crush on the whole Marine thing, when I was young, I wanted to be in the Royal Marines, um, and I always thought, you know, you, you joined the Royal Marines at 17, 18 years old. So it shocks me to hear that you joined the Royal Marines at 25, but we'll get to that in a minute. But just talk me through quickly, what did you do between, you know, leaving school, overcoming the injuries and the, and the assault, and then the time that you joined the Royal Marines? And then why was it you joined the Royal Marines? Okay, so it's... A, a, so by the time I would, uh, was recovered, so I was you know, 16, 17 years old, and life eventually got back to normal. Um, my dad had a building company, and my brother at that time then had his own flooring company. Um, so I would you know, be working for my dad sometimes, um, and sometimes working for my brother. It then sort of evolved into me working with my brother full time. So that took me up to sort of 18, so after a couple of years of doing that, sort of 18, coming on to 19 years old. And I started feeling the, the stress of not dealing with, um, with, with, with the stabbing. And uh, I, I did consider um, taking my own life at, at one point, you know, because of aspiring to the type of person that my dad was so and so forth and I was really struggling with putting that front on because I, I was I really had to struggle being around people um, even if it was going out for a, a family dinner my confidence was so here I struggled with sort of being able to just have general chit chat with people so then I'd be sitting there making such an effort that it's tiring when you've got to make an effort to do things like that you know as months and years go past, it just wears you down. Just going down shots, having to run through it all in my head before I go, okay, so what if I get approached? What if I get into an argument? You know, what if that happens? Okay, right, don't be silly, build yourself up. You know, you go through a certain amount of years with, with having to deal with that. It wears you down. And then all it takes is other stuff, external things in life that normally you'd be able to deal with, but it just starts piling up pine nuts you have money problems that's another thing to to add on to the weight and I found myself at uh, yeah, 19 years old just sitting on the toilet um, uh, on the toilet seat that's fine mate both images are right but um, uh, and just with my head in my hands and I, I seriously considered taking my own life luckily it didn't really get past that point it was just a real low period 
Um, and then I started picking myself back up and didn't use it as an excuse. You know, it was, it was you know, if I, if, I don't, if I don't continue forcing myself to build my confidence up, then the alternative is to actually, you know, go through on the things that is now starting to enter my head, which is I just didn't want to do. I suppose you could have used that actually, looking back, you could have used that entire period as an excuse to be somebody that goes in a completely different direction. Absolutely. And always have that in the back of your mind, I've got a reason for why I'm doing this, I've got a reason why I'm behaving this way. Yeah. But you didn't. No. So that's, that's no. interesting. So what did that push you into? What part of your life was that? Uh, so that pushed me into um, you know, getting particularly good at what I was doing with my brother on the floors, with doing uh, you know, wooden floors. And, and renovations, um, so renovating old floorboards was really coming into fashion at, at this time, which was early 2000, late 90s, early 2000, where everyone was ripping up their carpets and seeing floorboards and thinking, oh yeah, we'll renovate these, and it put, was putting the, the price of the sale up on houses. Um, so business was booming, and I was, got to the stage where I was being left on jobs, where my brother would drop me off, drop a machine off and the tools that I needed, he'd come back at the end of the day and the job was done. And I thought to myself, I can just do this myself. All I've got to do is save up a bit of money for, to buy a cheap van, put out some advertising, I really am showing my age here, in, in local <laughs> Yellow Pages Yellow and pages. Thompson. Um, so this was pre-sort of internet days. And uh, get the tools that I need and just go for it. And that's what I'd done. I'd, I got my head down for a couple of months, screwed away a couple of grand, and then when the time was ready, uh, just got into the, the local classifieds and the auto trader, found a van for a thousand pound, bought that. Um, I think it was 500 pound for the actual flooring tools that I needed. And, you know, got the bits and pieces I needed and, and the advert, sorry, to put out, it was a thousand pound on the advert in the Yellow Pages and the Thompson Local. And the date that it was supposed to come out, I can vividly remember standing there with my now wife, um, looking at the telephone in the morning, thinking, I wonder when it's going to ring. So the, the advert goes live today. I wonder when the phone's going to ring. And she was like, yeah, I wonder. It might take a couple of days, you know, and going through all the different things, not, not trying to manage your own expectations. When I made a cup of tea, and during making the cup of tea, the phone rang, and that was the first job the way the first person called in to get me to go around and, and do the estimate and since then the phone didn't stop ringing for the period that I was doing it so it, that was my first taste of building something from scratch because I applied myself it's what I wanted to do so I applied myself to it and did you gain a level of confidence in yourself at that point that's when my confidence really started building up and it was after about two or three years, maybe two, well, actually, so no, so 20, so, um, so what, we're talking four or five years, even, of the business running. Oh, so you're established, this is a real thing now, this isn't just... Bear in mind, you say established, it was, I got up to about five guys working for me, and I had two, uh, three bands at one point on the road. Um, but I was still self-employed, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have any bricks and mortar. That was going to be the next stage of getting a shop and actually really becoming an established flooring firm. But the, when we were moving house one time, cut a long story short, the, we 
phoned up, um, I, feel, I think it was phoning up BT, making sure, no, yeah, so it was making sure with BT that the phone number could change and, or we could keep our phone number because we, we'd only recently just got out a new advert. Um, when we moved, got sent into the new house, set up the office, phoned up BT and said, right, yep, yeah, we're in, you can switch us on now. And they were like, oh, sorry, Mr. Hayes, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so it was like, shit. So we just paid for new adverts that were going to have the wrong number in it. No. So when people were flicking through to, to shop around, they'd call me and then they'd get, please hang up and redial. So we had it all redirected, but the amount of people that would just oh, no, move on to the next advert. Mm. So we lost a massive amount of business and we knew we were going to really, really struggle through that first year. So that's when the idea of joining the Marines really started coming to life because it was like, okay, so we know, we now know, what do we know? We know that we're gonna to need to restart from scratch again, more or less from scratch at the end of the year, because we're just about gonna make it through. So it's gonna be redoing the advert and rebuilding the work back up. Um, and if we do that, we're all in. We're then working towards getting a shop, so on and so forth, and that's gonna be the future. Or make it through this year and instead of paying out all the extra money to restart the business, I joined the Marines, which first tick in the box is it's doing something I've always wanted to do. Second tick in the box is that it gets us out of London. Third tick is that it's you know a stable, um, a stable job with regular money, and it's a career I can build on. It's not dead end, you know. And if with the passion that I knew that I had inside, because it's what I'd wanted to do from from birth, <laughs> almost, I knew that they'd be able to sort of just go as high as I yeah. wanted to. So, like, just hold on that a minute, because look, you, so you're 25 years old, yep. you're a mature man, you've, you've been running your own business for five, six years, you've got people working for you. Yeah. Well, by that time I hadn't, because we had to massively scale down, because the work wasn't coming in due to the right, okay. long advert. Yeah. So it literally was just me getting the small bits of work that we had coming in to keep us ticking over. But you've been, you've been I suppose, working, <laughs> You've been working in this role, in this capacity, to then switch your mind at that age to join the Royal Marines, where you're going to go in as a basic recruit at the yeah. very, very bottom, with a high likelihood that you're going to fail, because that's, I think, where most people would agree that it's a very, very difficult course. Yeah. Like, what was your mindset even like at that point, going into that? What was your self-belief like? Because it sounds to me like it must have been through the roof. Looking back on it now, it, it must have been. It, and it was, and it was unwavering, and I don't know what it was. There was something inside of me that was driving me forward. And there's so many funny moments that I can look back on, because when I first mentioned it, at first the wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, my now wife, she was like, oh my God, am I even going to get a say in this? Because she could see the look in my eyes that I've made this decision. Because I'd convinced before even talking to her and looking back on it now, it's like, oh, I wouldn't get away with that now. And it was the wrong thing. You know, it was the wrong thing. But I was young. Um, and I'd convinced myself already before even speaking to anyone that it was the right thing to do for various different reasons. You know, because I took on um, two children that the wife had already had at the time by, by a previous relationship. But they were so young, they now see me as, as dad. Um, so I was thinking, right, I've got a young family, I can get them out of London, da -da -da -da, you know, all, all the different things that, that were the plus. Um, 
so I was already convinced. So then that cleared the path. I didn't have to worry about that. Then all I could con I just had to concentrate on actually making it happen. And there were so many elements to that. And this is where the, the drive, I don't know where it came from. It was there. I couldn't map read for shit. I knew that was going to be a big problem. So I would literally get myself out with a map and just beg, borrow and steal from where I could, asking people around, right, who can map read? Do you mind coming out with me? Um, and it, my, I was never very academic. I didn't do, I could have done well in school, but I, you know, I chose not to. Um, so I knew that I had to work on that and the fitness as well. I knew that I had to, you know, I'd never really, up, up until the age of, that age, you know, 25, I hadn't really done much, even though I did lead, lead a, a manual sort of life, if you like, with, with in the building industry. <clears throat> but I knew that I needed that military fitness with, you know, the cardiovascular fitness, getting out there, getting the miles in on the road. So all of that was getting done. Um, when I came home from the Royal Marines recruitment office with the Royal Marines brochure that gave you the basic information of what would be asked of you and what you need to prepare for, um, at the back was the specialisations, so that was their sort of sales bit if you like, and SBS was there. Now I grew up with an SAS soldier. Mm on my wall and it was that poster that I must have got from a magazine of in, in their black kit with the respirator on and it had all the different bits of writing with, with arrows you know and I just you know idolised that and just was fascinated by it all you know one million pounds and that was back then per soldier to train and all the different bits of kit that they had and just that look of you know that dark mysterious look and obviously the Iranian embassy siege yeah. right then um, so straight away I was sold. This was before I'd even passed the potential Royal Marines course, which you have to do before actually getting loaded on full basic training. Yeah. I was convinced that's what I'm doing. And the phone call I had to my dad one time, and I told his exact words, I said, Dad, I'm going Special Forces. He said, fuck off, son. <laughs> <laughs> fuck off, son. Go back to the floors. Yeah. Yeah. Which was basically get realistic. But my mind was made up that if I was going to do this, then I had to aim for what I really wanted to do. I wasn't just going to join and you know see how it goes. That's the ultimate goal. That see how it goes, and if I do what, no. If I join the Marines, it will be to get out of the Marines as quickly as possible into Special Forces, and I made it happen. I, I was in, in the Marines for just under, just over two years. I'd done the minimum time and I badgered and pissed off enough people asking for selection because I would just get laughed at. But I must have pissed off the Sergeant Major um, at 4-2 Commando in Plymouth so much that eventually, the last time I went in there, they say, right, no, I don't want to be a signaller, I don't want to be this, I don't want to be that, I want to go on selection. Um, in the end, he was just like, okay, if that's what you want, you're the one that's going to be sorry, you're the one that's going to come back here with your back tail in between your legs. Yeah. But he said, on one condition, if you don't pass, when you come back, your next draft will be in Scotland. So I thought, shit, okay, that gives me a bit of motivation, but it is a bit worrying. 
went home, told the missus, she said, if you don't pass, when you go to Scotland, I won't be coming with you. Not that pressure, love. <laughs> so it was all to play for. But do you know what? It didn't really enter my head. It, I, I, I knew that I could pass. I, I knew that I could. What, what worried me was um, injury. That's what worried me. If there, you know, if I twisted my ankle or. So, so did that comf- confidence come around though by the fact? So you now you passed Royal Marine selection. You're now serving Royal Marine. Yeah. So you know what it must be like to manage an injury. No doubt you would have seen people in training within the Royal Marines that maybe didn't pass out because of injury. Yeah. So how how going into something like Special Forces selection? Did you do anything to prepare yourself physically, which you did differently when you joined the Royal Marines? Or was it more of a mental thing by this point? Oh no, it, it was. I don't know, the, the, the mental side of things I don't think really changed or the approach to how I sort of got myself ready mentally didn't really change. It's just I had more confidence. So obviously with passing Royal Marines and becoming Royal Marines Commando, I knew that the sky was the limit as far as you know, physical abilities was concerned. So yeah. that was the easy part, it was just applying myself. And being at, at Plymouth 4-2 Commando was was brilliant preparation because it's so hilly. It's ridiculously hilly. So it's great for going out and running and getting your heel, you know, heels legs. Plus you've got the moors with the tours that you can climb up, which is great for navigation and fitness as well. So I'd get weight on my back and just get out on the road and I was just beasted myself and got myself as fit as I possibly could, but in a smart way because someone told me some really good advice and it, it kind of, at the time, I struggled to get my head around it. And a lot of people can't get their head around it. But it kind of, it did click. And I thought, that makes sense. A lot of people would fail selection because they were too fit. They would go on there too fit. So a lot of PTIs would, would come off of the course, sort of at the heels phase, halfway through, um, because they would burn out. Because if you imagine, if you're f- you know, as fit as you can possibly be, where else have you then got to go? Mm. And it just opens up the possibility for you to, to burn out one time with all the pressure of everything you've got ahead of you, you're just going to be like, IVW, I voluntary withdraw, I'm, I'm out of here. Whereas, even though I was pushing myself and getting myself as ready as possible, I tried to listen to the advice on, you know, a week before, you've got to resist the urge of wanting to get out, rest, You've done all you can. You're not going to lose all your fitness in the last week. Mm. You know, take it easy and recuperate. So I started the course fresh and I can remember, you know, feeling a bit of a peak and feeling really strong just before the end. The endurance, the last march that you do at the end of the hills phase was proper emotional, you know. And it's a, it's a timing thing. I found personally it's a timing thing because if I'd have missed time to be training, I may have peaked a little bit sooner yep. and I'd have, lit, I'd have been on my hands and knees trying to cross the finish line in endurance. So for, so for those listening and, and watching, the Royal Marines, your, your training is just a, a constant course. Is it 32 weeks, 36 weeks? It's, it's 32 weeks, yeah. Um, so it might be 34 now. I think they've added a couple of things, but yeah, 32 when I was in. Okay. You then go into a new period of training. This is now for the SBS. How does that look ahead of you? First day of training, you, you know, you, you've, you've, you've passed the selection, you're there. How many people were with you? 
Um, I think the course started off with what 150, 200 people, wow, something okay. like that. Um, Talk us through what happens because I think so many people will be will be keen and eager to to listen to this part of the story because I think it's so so important that people understand. You know, you are you are just human beings. You know, you you achieve amazing things. I know that firsthand. But you start from the beginning like everybody else. So you're there with 150 people. Yeah. What what did that look like? What happened? Um, they drop off quite quickly, and you can kind of tell those that because you're going on with such a um, a frame of mind of that you're here for this. You know, you are you're passing there. You know, no one's getting in your way. You're sort of you're in fight mode almost, um, and you can tell those that that aren't really in it. Looking back on it now. Yeah. Is that an age thing or? No, just, you know, if those, the, the, obviously you're going to get, because of the, the glam, the, and it's not as glamorous as what you think it is, but because it's got that persona and, and, and that sort of, um, you know, a lot of people are interested. If you're, if you're in the military, you know, anyone would say that, yeah, I wish I'd have done special forces. So you, it, it it will the course will have a lot of people on it that aren't there necessarily because they have a true passion to want to do it. Yeah. They're just on there because yeah, I I wouldn't mind giving it a go. That's the mistake. You you literally have to it has to be on your mind when you're going to sleep. You have to be you for me personally, maybe not, but what I found is that I visualized being an SF operator. Yeah, I understand. I get that. So you know, it, it the, the the drive for it and the motivation and then and those times um, where you need to be able to keep yourself going, it, it, that that massively helps because it's a, a true want. It's not you're just doing this and see how it goes. It's a true want, um, and I think that's where the the thing is with where some people think that you're superhuman. It's not. It's just because you want it. So if if I tried to go for being a brain surgeon, uh, I don't think I'd be. That's if I was a bit more academic, by the way. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But even then, I don't think I would get through the, the the work, the academic work that you need to do because it's not what I want. But you're, you know, you said almost. Correct me if I'm wrong, but almost joining the Royal Marines became a stepping stone for you. Yes. To join the SPS. Absolutely. And, you know, at this point, would there be any advice you would give if anyone was watching this now and they were even themselves contemplating on joining the Royal Marines, but they, but they may think, well, I want to go on to Special Forces, but I almost don't feel like it's the right thing I want to be telling people. What would you What would you say to them? Should that be something that they go vocal about? No, this is what I'm aiming for. This is what. No, I'm you don't have to go vocal about it. It was just, um, it was just the way that I, I didn't even think about staying quiet about it. I, I, I was. It was almost like. Um, had no sort of conscious thought in that way. Yeah. I didn't see an issue with it. It's only looking back on it now. And because at the time I was thinking, do people think that I'm lying? And then eventually I did go quiet because I thought to myself, I don't want people to think I'm either bullshitting yeah, or being crazy. So it was almost like I had to hold back. And it was almost a bit frustrating because it's like, I can't understand why people can't or don't think it's normal for, to to be looking at something that you want and say right I'm going for that 
and I'm going to get it. it. A lot of people do struggle with that mm. because they might think, oh, he's just, you know, a, a, a chance or, or, you know, a BS, they're talking BS or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say don't go vocal with it. But if you, certainly don't try to not listen to it yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've got some, because that is the key to it. That's the key to achieving whatever it is that you want to do. You've, you've got to actually want it. It can't be just, if it's something particularly hard, that is. You know, and there are some people in the world, and you'll know as, as well as anyone, that have got that natural gift mm. that anything they turn their hands to, they, they'll, they'll just do, you know? Um, but if it is something particularly arduous, like if it is um, wanting to aspire to be a doctor, an airline pilot, or in the Air Force as a pilot, Royal Marines, Special Forces, you have to genuinely really want it. Mm. Otherwise, you're going you're to either struggle or you will have to build yourself back up again because you won't make it. Yeah. I Interestingly, when I look back, there was um, when I first joined, uh, or when I when I applied to become a firearms officer, you go on a firearms basic firearms course, and I always remember it was a it was a, a one course, but you had to pass that course before you moved on to some other courses and other elements. But I put so much pressure on myself to pass that, I completely zoned in. Nothing else really mattered. Um, I probably wasn't a great husband. I wasn't a great you know, family man at that time at all. Looking back on it, I was probably being quite selfish in the way I was around those at home. And I put huge pressure on myself to pass that course. And I'm not sure this is how anyone deals with this. I don't know how you would, how you took on the courses that you confronted by. But Sounds the same so far. Yeah, I, I, again, looking back, I didn't even actually, I didn't actually like how I felt by doing it because I became just all consumed. I had to pass this course. It meant so much to me. I don't know what, how I would have handled it had I not passed. And then when we got to the end of that course, the basic course, um, there was a really high failure rate at the time. There were, there were 14 of us on a course, and I was the only person to pass. And I remember sitting in the canteen, the, the police canteen as it was at the time, and everybody, one at a time, you'd have to walk out. It was right at the end of the course. It was the very final day. You've come off a final exercise. Everyone's hanging. Everyone's peed off. You're filthy. You're dirty. You're stressed out, because this is it now. And then one, one by one, everyone would walk off into the little firearms walk at, at the time, and I would then see them coming back. You know, some men were in tears. It was a really, really, really emotional time. And there it was. I was the last person to walk in. I thought, I might as well just, I might as well just fucking go home. Like, why am I putting myself through this? Everyone else has failed. Yeah. So I walked up and then to be told that I'd passed, the feeling was euphoric. Yeah. It was amazing. And it did set my mind forward to, to be that person I was during those times in the firearms team. But I look back and it was an uncomfortable time because I put so much pressure on myself. So long story but when it comes to you and you're saying that it's similar did that follow you throughout the whole selection process or was there a point where you realise the confidence in yourself now because I know how, how confident you are as an individual um, but was there like a turning point even during special forces selection where you thought no I've got this like I've I don't have to put this pressure on me anymore this is mine or was it really to the very last day did you did you know that you passed so to speak or was it really up until that last moment the only pressure that I put on myself was making sure that I knew what I was doing, so anything you had to say. With, with the heels phase, making sure that I was proficient on map reading, and I put massive amounts of pressure on myself leading up to it, so that's where I put the pressure on myself, preparing for it. 
when I was actually on the course. So that maybe I could like enlighten going back using a, a boxing analogy just because it's something that my dad always used to say is that um, he would always be scared before a fight. And if anyone, if any boxer said that they're not, they were either crazy or mm -hmm. a liar. But as soon as you step in the ring, all of that fear goes and it's fight time. Yeah, I get that. So once, once I was starting the new route on the hills, you'd had the butterflies the night before, making sure that you know, you, you, you're, you're going through the routes in your head because you don't know which one you're going to get or the grid references until, until that, that morning. That's nice of them. You don't get it until after each checkpoint as well. So even though you kind of know the routes, you don't want to get caught out. So you get to the checkpoint, you have to show where you are, and then they'll give you the next grid reference for where you've got to go for the next che checkpoint. You've got to find it on the map and show them. So at every point, they're checking that you know what you're doing. It's probably a safety thing. Yeah. Well. And then off you go. So because I prepared and put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that I was proficient in whatever was in front of me, I could then just concentrate on performing come, come the time of when it was actually happening. Because yeah. I'd already had a few experiences of failing things in the Marines, um, failing map reading um, or navigational exercises, and it's a horrible feeling. So all I had to do was relate that to failing a march on selection and not being able to achieve my dream. I would live so similar to sort of fo uh, um, visualizing winning something, visualizing being a special forces operator to help with that motivation and drive. I I visualized failing as well and how that would feel. So I I, I sort of visualized how bad I would feel if I failed. So then that would spur you on even more to to prepare as best as you could. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that's, I probably answered that in a roundabout way, but I would put a lot of pressure on myself in preparing for what I needed to do, so that when I was actually on the course itself, I was just going all guns blazing to, yeah. to make sure that I was doing... I love, I love that maturity of mind you must have had in a way to be able to envisage the failing aspect, because just going back with that story I said in relation to me waiting to hear whether I passed or failed this course, I hadn't got that far. At that point, I think I'd actually accepted the whole time through, I'm likely going to fail this. It's a strange place to be. I didn't have the confidence. Every single day that went past was like a day of survival. Yeah. Fuck that, it's another day over. Oh, I've got, I've got a score on that, I passed that. Yeah. Never once during that whole course I think, I fucking got this. Never, never once. So it was a surprise to me then to, to hear that I'd actually passed. Yeah. But had I failed, I hadn't really prepared myself honestly for that. I don't know how that would have affected me. I, you know, I had the same questions because I, I thought to myself, am I going to have the strength to redo this? Like yeah. a lot of guys, you know, it's like their second time, they've failed the first time, they're on there for the second time, there's three strikes and you're out right. as well. You, you can't, if you, if you fail the third time on selection, that's it, you're never going to be a special forces operator for the rest of your life. So I didn't, that didn't really bother me because I thought to myself, bloody hell, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to do it for the second time, let alone third time. But um, that was always a question that I was asking myself throughout the, the whole process mm -hmm. over the years is, would I have as, as, strong, as, as much confidence I've got in my mental strength with 
you know, being able to do this because I know I really want to. If I fail, for whatever reason, if I come off from injury or whatever else, or, or you know, cock up somehow, would I have the strength, the mental strength, to be able to do it again? Do it again. So in a way, that was kind of helped with a bit of pressure mm. to make sure. Right. If you if you can't answer that, then just make sure you pass first time. Then. Yeah. Stop thinking about it. Just pass. Stop thinking about yeah. it. Pass. But I did. I do know what you're talking about in regards to having wobbles and thinking, mm. "Have I got this?" Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I I had a few wobbles. The the first wobble was when on the hills phase when the clad came in, one of the last marches before the final final march, and it was literally pea soup. You could not see your hand in front of your face. And it took me forever to find the first checkpoint. And I was lost at some point on navigationally challenged, if you like. And I knew that I'd wasted a load of time. Um, eventually found it. And I, I was then in catch-up mode. And it was horrendous. <laughs> and all these things go through your head because it's like, this is the worst thing I would needed to happen because I'm using all my energy that I want to save for the final exercise or the final march. And now I'm having to use it to catch up this time. Um, anyway, that was the first sort of wobble because as I was walking around what seemed like in circles, not being able to see the map in front of my face, I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm not passing this march and that's me freaking binned. Um, didn't happen. The second wobble was in the trees, in the jungle, for the second phase of, of selection. And um, I had... I, I think it's safe to say I got lost. <laughs> it's safe to say. <laughs> so it was just two of us, and if you if you turn around for a second, the person in front of you, if they walk off, within a split second they've disappeared. And I think I turned around to to check our back blast, and when I turned back, he was gone. So I thought, right, don't panic. Don't like just go wandering off. Just wait here for a second. And I thought if he's going to know that I'm not with him, so surely he's either going to come back or I'm going to see him going, psst, come here. I didn't. I'm like, oh, fucking hell, this is like <laughs> the worst scenario ever. I thought, I've got to go for it. By this time, I'm kind of disorientated. Which way did he go off? And I found myself walking around the jungle on my own. <laughs> and there's a pressure right now that if, if you don't find your way through, what is that it? Yeah, if they'd have had to have sent out a search team, uh, it's, it's unlikely I'd have carried on. No. Just for the fact you could have lived down the ribbon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think they'd have um, come to the conclusion, well, you might not be the person that we want. Yeah. Because the heel phase is, you can map read, okay, good. You're strong. Okay, good. It doesn't mean that you've got common sense or that you've got the ability to, you know, really sort of learn and be the, the person that we need you to be. And that starts creeping in once you're in the jungle. Yeah. Um, so it by once then we eventually met back up again, and found out, and he was slightly lost as well, to be honest with you. So you know, it's thank God. It, yeah, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't just me. So when we found out, when we met back up with each other, he was like, "Where did you go?" And I'm like, "Mate, don't fucking start that. Where did you go?" <laughs> <laughs> so we eventually bumped into a DS who was kind of, it was still on that borderline of, we weren't actually being looked for, but we were a little bit late for the checkpoint. And he's like, where the fuck are you two been? And I owned, owned up straight away. 
because I, I, I sort of knelt down and said, "Staff, um, you know, I've I should have stood where I was or stayed where I was, but I did. I might have gone off in in the wrong direction." Um, and the other guy got some shit as well. Anyway, without going into too much detail, ever since then, after that, for the rest of the time I was in the jungle, which was I think another another week, maybe a week and a half, because um, it's four weeks that you do in total in, in the jungle. So that's the, that's the jungle phase? That's the jungle to. phase, yeah. So it was a, a couple of weeks after, well, it was just after halfway through. So I had the rest of the time being completely paranoid that they were just going to bin me at the end anyway because of it. It's not good, is it? No, I hated it. Yeah. Horrible, horrible experience to still have to perform to the level that you've got to and for it, the, as tough as a environment as it is, and to have that on your mind. It was my worst case scenario. Um, and looking back on it now, it's just another thing that actually adds to chips away at your armor. Mm. Because having to deal with such pressurized things, it, um, it, it does sort of dent, dent your armor for, for later yeah. on. Yeah, I, I, really, I really associate with that. Um, but yeah, all, all the training courses that you do, if you have been that person who's done something at the start of a course, but it's not been enough that you've not been immediately booted off, but you're carrying that on the back of your mind thinking, right, there's a mark against my name now. There's yeah. no more room for me to do anything. Yeah. Um, it's not a nice pressure. It's, not, it's pressure. not, but looking back on it now, do you know what? It's because we care. True. It's because we care. And yeah, I, I, I used to look in envy at those that had thicker skin and it's like, don't give a shit to get on with it, um, which is great. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's equally not as nice to to have as, as much feelings mm. as we may have. True. <laughs> you look yeah, like a cuddly you got sort of bear. <laughs> you're more soft now. Like I said, no, you don't want to hear any of this. I'm a, a cuddly bald bear. So um, I didn't want to mention about the boldness, but you've said it. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, you've passed selection. Well, one thing I'm always interested in. So. Everyone who, were, who, who you were training with, I take it they were all Navy, all Royal Marines. There was no Army with you? I take it there's no joint training between you and the SAS? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's joint selection. has been for years. I, I think that happened reasonably. You're going to test me on my history now. Um, in, back in sort of you know, 1940s, 1950s, it, there was a definite divide. You know, you had Hereford and, and you had the, the SBS, it's at the SAS and SBS. Whereas, um, I can't remember the date that joint selection came about, but it's been going for quite a few years. Um, maybe, so when was the Iranian embassy? Wow, 80s, 1980. 82, 83, Two. I think it was 1982, 1983. We both um, looked towards David. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping he'd get on Google. Yeah. Um, and it must have been around about that time, just, just afterwards. But basically, equal amounts of, or not equal amounts, but there or thereabouts of Hereford applicants for the SAS will be on selection, so it's joint selection. So, you know, if there's, um, if there's 150 of you, then roughly half would, would be SB. Right. A lot of the time it would be quite, it might be unequal depending on, on, on how many candidates apply that, yeah. that year. Um, but it's joint selection. And when we, on my selection, it was roughly equal amounts that passed. I can't remember how many. It was quite a big selection. We had a really strong course. So if it was 20 of us that passed, it was roughly 10 that were going to Hereford, and 10 of us were, were, were SB. Um, but, and that was a big course. 
you know, it was a big, big course. Would, would that be a normal expected pass rate in Hudson? No, I think it was higher. Right. Yeah, that was higher. We had a really strong course. And where would you put yourself in that course? Because there might be some people watching right now that would. Oh, what, as in. Where would you place yourself, do you think, in those who, who passed, you know, as to the strength of a candidate, as the strength of a. As far, oh, I smashed it, as far as selection was concerned. Un undoubtedly, I, I smashed it. And I had that mentality. And. Um, How interesting is that to hear, though, from somebody? that you, know, you get through a course like that and most would say that's just a matter of complete survival. I, I survived it, I just got to the end of it, you know, thank fuck I've passed. Tony Hayes smashed it. Yeah, because I wanted it and it's almost like I prepared for it my whole life. So, and I think that, that helps you a lot. But don't get me wrong, because of what I, I it, you know, it was slightly different for me moving on. And a lot of the guys that pass um, selection are extremely switched on. And they are, you know, the, you know, the the, the top echelon of of human beings. Mm. It's, it's the, the new guy. I can remember being um, in the squadrons after a couple of years, and new guys coming in, and you know, younger guys, younger generation. But they had this sparking. They're switched on, and you've got to struggle to keep up with them. <laughs> so as much as I smashed selection, and again, I had my wobbles, as I've already spoke about. But the the jungle, other than that that bit of a tough time at the end, I, I quite enjoyed it. Because again, it was, you, you've prepared, so you know what you're doing. You, you've just, you've got to show the drills and skills and have your admin squared away. I never had an issue with my admin, so that's probably why I didn't struggle too much. But I enjoyed it because I was physically ready for it. And the, the, I, the heat didn't really trouble me as much as it can with some people. Yeah. But um, I struggled a lot with the academic side of things. So I, I had to work a lot harder than others might have had to with retaining information and, and, and learning the new skills. So for FAC training, for instance, one of the specialisations in the squadron being a forward air controller where you've got to talk to the jets and, and bring the bombs in. Um, not particularly hard course, but you've got to apply yourself. There's a lot to know. You're speaking to jets and fire pilots, are, you know, they're switched on cookies as well. Um, and you have to really live up to their expectations when you're, when you're talking to them, you've got to be um, you know, completely on the ball with what you're talking about. And obviously the, the being accurate as to where you're saying for these bombs to drop. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Exactly. Other guys, and on my course in particular, the, they didn't really have an issue with that because they may have done university before the military um, you know their brain might have been trained a bit better in mm. that way with learning new stuff a bit easier because they're already used to studying in, in sort of past years whereas I didn't have any of that not using it as an excuse because I still obviously forged ahead and, and cracked on and, and still produced the goods at the end but it was a lot harder for me compared to some people, I really had to struggle. Yeah. And that put loads of dents in the armour as well, because that wore me out. Having to struggle a bit more than most other people were to keep up with the uber, uber switched on cookies, um, dented, dented the armour quite a bit, and, and it does wear you out. Mm. But ultimately you pass. Um, how, long is the, how long is the course at that stage when, you, when you've passed selection? The, the four phases? Yeah, so you've got the hills phase, 
Um, you then, if, if you pass that, you go on to the, the jungle phase. I'd be useless. I, I think hate spiders. Like I absolutely, <laughs> my, my wife has to remove spiders, so I, I would have failed. Spiders are fine, it's, it's the bloody snakes. That yeah, you, can, you forget that as well. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I, would have, I would have happily done that, just bypass jungle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just, they, um, they, they've allowed that? Just being on the <laughs> But um, once you've passed that, it's then escape and evasion. And um, when you, if, if you pass escape and evasion, then you, which you then have resistance to interrogation to at the end of that. Yeah. Um, and if you pass that, because that rolls into to one, so you go straight from escape and evasion into resistance yeah. to interrogation. Um, if you pass that, that's just the beginning. You've just passed. You then do continuation training, which is even though you're badged and you've made it, you've then got to do get yourself ready for the squadrons. So whether you're going Hereford or Paul, you've then got to do, whether it be dive course, you've got to do all your jumps, your parachuting courses, um, your close quarter um, battle courses, yep. your CQB stuff. So that's where you're in the killing houses up in Hereford yep. with all your black kit on. Um, learning all of those basics, so that you've got the basics of everything really. Mm -hmm. Then you go into the squadrons. So there's, there's all these different areas of where you're just beginning. So even getting loaded on to selection and passing the briefing course before selection, once you've passed that, it's just the beginning. You've got to start selection. Get past selection. Once you've passed selection, it's just beginning again. Because now you've got to go through continuation training. You can still fuck up. Once you've done that and you start this, walk into the squadrons for the first time, it's only just starting again then, because you're you're fully aware of the and it's almost like be, not be careful what you wish for, but it's you. For me personally, one of the lures and the wants for for going special forces and getting out of the Marines as quickly as possible is because you you're treated more as a grown up and you're given more than enough rope to hang yourself. Yeah. So because you're treated as a grown up, you're expected to know what you're doing, within reason, obviously. Um, but you expect not to not to in the jungle. But, uh, no, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, um, and yeah, and that, that in itself, as much as I liked that, it comes with its own pressures, because then you, you, you've really got to make sure you know what you're doing. Mm. I imagine constantly. Yeah, and just standing by guys that are, the majority of them are just naturally good at that. You know, naturally good at, at being able to be good at things very quickly. How did you find the diving element during the training, and, and certainly diving in just pitch black water? From so for me, the um, the diving side of it, I. Um, was a non-diver for for a lot of the time. The obvious is because most of it was was in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so I'd done the three combat tours out, out in Afghan. Um, so I didn't really miss much because my period in the squadrons was in the heyday of when you know Afghan was royally kicking off. So so it's fair to say that really you know upon passing selection you've you've pretty much been thrown straight into deliberate action constantly yeah operations. it kind of changed things because what they've done with us is with 
Um, with those of us that went to Z Squadron, um, we missed out some of our continuation training because of Afghan. So the last part of continuation training was the diving course, and they picked a handful of us um, to go straight on to the specific relative courses that we'd need to go out to operations. So that's where I got loaded straight on. So I was informed as soon as walking into the squadron, I was informed, right, Tony, you're not going to be doing a dive course, you're going to be doing an FAC course, because as soon as you pass that, you're going straight out to Afghan. It was like, fucking <laughs> hell. Um, and when I come back, it was straight into that rotation. So if you don't do your dive course straight away, it can sometimes then be years afterwards that you don't get to do it because something else will always come yeah. up. Um, and it just so happened that I never really got around to doing it. When The one time that I did, I ended up with an infection in my lungs due to a dirty BU, which was horrendous. I went had an x-ray by the doctor in the local sort of med centre in, in Gibraltar. And he came out with the x-rays and he said, well, that'd be why you're out of breath. And you could see the, the two, the bits of the dark Jesus. bits of water that are sitting at the bottom of my lungs. Um, so I had to come back and it's like, bloody hell, yeah, this, this is never going to happen. Yeah, so, so just thinking about the fact that you've passed selection now, you are, you're in the mix of it with seasoned operators. Um, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve, but ultimately there's still life outside of the military. There's those around you that love you, your family. So what was the family situation like there? I'm just interested to know. Yeah, I think it must have been quite challenging, to be honest with you, because the, um, the, the one of the things I think that, that I, I haven't really gone into is the struggles that I've had from day one going into the squadrons. And I, I was very, very quickly dealing with, with stress. And so it must have been tough um, for the wife because the last couple of years, so I was performing at the standard that I should do, even though I had to work a lot harder than most others, I was performing to the standard that I should have been for, you know, six, seven years in squadrons, which was just a relentless rotation. Um, three tours of Afghan, the, the, the counter-terrorism, black roll as well, and it was just a continuous cycle. And did you have any downtime at all? Did you... you you got limited downtime. Um, to be honest with you, very limited. Very, very limited. So you didn't need to off onto some other sort of form of training or specialism that you were just you, you could do. You could do. You could do external drafts, and a lot of guys did. So after a couple of years in the squadron, you could put into whether it be the training team, go off to Hereford, which was a bit of downtime, one of the training teams locally for like the boat or the dive team. Yeah. And, and that put you into a bit more of a stable thing for two years. Um, I opted to stay in the squadron, which was a mistake looking back on it now, because I didn't want to miss out on anything. I wanted to say, stay at the sharp end, if you like, which was silly. Um, so for the whole time I was in the squadrons for seven, eight years, in the squadrons, I was on that constant operational cycle. Um, the last couple of years was when things were really starting to sort of break for me. I was, I was drinking heavily of a weekend. I was sinking a couple of bottles of wine in one night easily, putting the music up full blast, um, my next door neighbour, if he ever listens to and watches this, the time, um, at that time, in the married patches, he must have been like, what the fuck is going on? Because <laughs> that was, it was, uh, I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't know what I was doing, but that's how much I was struggling. I, I would, of a weekend, to try and get away from it all, 
I would just sink a couple of bottles of wine and by then, by the time I was pissed enough to, to forget, I'd then whack the volume up right. on, in, um, on the stereo and, and, and then just, you know, drowned everything out. Yeah. What were you trying to escape from that? Just the, the, the day-to-day struggles and everything was starting to catch up. So the stabbing was starting to catch up. The, the, the struggles of having to compete at such a, a high level were starting to catch up. And, um, you know, you're just, a, you're just a man at the end mm. of the day, aren't you, you know? And you're not talking about that again very openly with people at that point? You're dealing with not all. Your own. Not at all. No, it wasn't the done thing. Um, then, on top of that, my dad died unexpectedly, suddenly, with a massive heart attack. Um, and that was kind of the final straw because he, he wasn't insured, my mum was about to lose her house. Um, and I'm like, you know, I almost saw it as an escape, almost, as, a, as, a, as an out. That's my reason. That, that's it. it gives me a valid reason to say, that's it, no more, I want to get out. Um, and I kind of rationalised it with, no, I'm doing the right thing, I'm trying to look after my family. Um, so, but maybe, maybe it was the right thing anyway, mentally, I don't know how much more I could have handled, yeah. a rest might have helped. But um, I think it was time I needed to change, because to be able to operate at that level, if, you, if, if you've lost your edge, so to speak, and you've lost that 100% commitment, then you're not just a danger to yourself, but you're a danger to your mates. I don't want that sort of shit starting to creep into my head yeah, sure. when you're about to do something, when you're stacked up on the door, or you're doing underway drills, which are massively dangerous, climbing up the sides of the ships. And if you've got an important role in making the, the, where you've got to do something, that if you don't do it right, could jeopardise someone else's safety or yourself, then you need to be grown up enough to um, to be able to say that's me, mm. you know. If 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 I feel that I've lost it and I can't perform one hundred percent, then it's time for me to go. And in going, because this is something you know, I stepped away from something that I was part of for fifteen years, and I struggled immensely with feelings of loss and uh, yeah, feelings identity. Of, uh, Oh, identity was a killer yeah. for me. And I, and I wish in a way it wasn't. I wish in a way that, that, that having done what I used to do wasn't such a part of me because I realised that whilst I was doing it, it defined me far more than it should have done. Gave you a quiet confidence, didn't it? Yeah, it, yeah it did. So as you're, you know, you could just be in a shopping centre walking around and you know, you could just hold, exactly, you mm. just hold just your head up and you've just got that thing inside you where it's, I don't have to prove anything. Mm. Like you said, you know, I know. Um, and it can help in situations where someone might piss you off. And it's like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother with mm. you. No, I get that, I get that. You know, so all these little things. And yeah, so it, that might sound silly and trivial, but actually it becomes part of your life and the way that you live your life, it becomes part of your identity. Mm. And it's a big thing. It's something I didn't even think about. And something that could possibly be really good for, to be a part of talking to people before they leave. I don't know if they do, they certainly didn't in my time. Um, but it, it's, it's a massive thing and it took me years. It's only in recent times now that I've realised it, it's a thing and it is something I actually struggled with. Um, that, that loss of identity 
it does it's a real act, thing. It affects. It does affect you. And I, and, I, and I think looking back as well, the knock-on effect for me was um, I stepped away from the police at a time where I didn't have a great deal of savings. I didn't have a big escape strategy, if that makes sense. Mm. So I had to sort of put my feet on the floor and just start walking. I needed to start bringing an income in. That's how it was at the time. Yeah. Um, and I had to balance with. I had to balance the feelings of loss and all. It's like a feeling of well, it was depression. There was depression there, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't have known that. Face to face, talking to me, you wouldn't have known that. Clown face goes on. Uh, completely. Yeah. That work face is back up again. Yeah. But behind the scenes, my fucking, my life was all over the place. Yeah. Again, I wasn't a great husband then, I wasn't a great father. I was just only doing the minimal because I didn't even know where I, was, where I was in life. Everything that I used to measure myself against had gone. Yeah. It's a really, it was a horrible feeling. So I, I concur completely if there's a chance to talk to people in similar situations, whatever unit force, law enforcement, yeah. government, whatever it would be. I think it's vital because you don't know you don't know how strong a feeling that is until it happens. Exactly, but, but that's then it's the gone, problem. and then you've got to deal with it. That's the problem with 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 sort of with strong characters, with alpha, not even just alpha males, but mm. proud men. Um, it's it takes it's got to come to a stage where you really are struggling, and if you go back and say to someone like if the guys in the squadrons or guys in in, in the police units so on and so forth, and you go back and say, look, it's a mistake to not talk early on. So if yeah. you get a wobble and you think, oh, it'll be okay, I'll get past it, talk. Because if you let it build up, you might not be as lucky as what I've been and what you have been, where it really does hit ahead and, mm. and, and get to the stage where you're contemplating suicide um, but lucky enough to actually come through it. Yeah. Some guys aren't lucky enough. But but I wouldn't have listened to that. At the time. So it almost is that sad reality of that most guys are going to have to wait until they're in a situation where they hit rock bottom to find out if they're going to be that person or not to uh, to, to, to actually go through with any yeah. silly faults. So it's quite easy to implore people and to say, look, talk, please talk. Um, and a lot of people would listen to that, and I, I should imagine it would, it would help people in the first instance. It still needs to be said, don't get me wrong, because unless it was said so much, I, I, I wouldn't have eventually talked. But it did take for me to be in an extremely dark place for me to eventually pick the phone up. Yeah, yeah. But it absolutely saved my life. Look, I'm going to have to admit, a schoolboy admission right now and that's that I'm aware that the battery on our cameras very close to running out um, so, I, so I, I could talk about this all day this. I think what what we, sh what we should do is just summarize by saying that um, I think there's another there's a whole nother video actually in talking to you about your story it's certainly within special forces but I think we can we can at least final final sorry finalize this by saying that you spent you know six seven years is it right on, so on, on a ten, ten, tour? Yeah, ten, 10 years in total, including two years in Marines. So, um, seven and a half, eight years in squadrons. And coming out of that with, the, with the, the, the pressures upon you, the stresses upon you like they were, you've gone into a period of, of if you can explain quickly, it was private contract in maritime security. Yes. And I'd love you to just touch on whilst we've got a few minutes left, and we will make another video, I promise you, because I think there's so much to share, and it's important that we do. Um, but what this is hanging here, what this is and how it came about. Absolutely. So we've got, what we got, like two minutes? Oh, yeah. Just a quick round of a couple of minutes. Yeah, brilliant. Um, 
So this, this came about whilst I was doing maritime security operations on ship in, in the Indian Ocean where you've got limited space. Um, and I was lucky enough at, at the start to have British guys, ex-military British guys in my team. And m more often than not, one of them would either have some Olympic rings with the straps in their bag or, or a TRX or something similar. Um, and I really started getting into to using them. And there was one time where I got uh, caught out because the structure changed and we ended up having local nationals in part of our team. So I would have like Indian Gurkhas or Pakistani Navy or ex-Navy from, from Pakistan. So they, they made up the team, but I didn't think they're probably not going to have a TRX or Olympic rings in their bags. So I was really getting into it and I thought, right, I don't want to miss out. Um, I should have bought one myself, but anyway, I, I, I made, I just looked around the ship, found an old piece of rope, um, found some uh, bits of plastic to use as handles and just made my own suspension training. Because let's face it, a, a TRX is effectively just a strap with plastic yeah. handles on. So I thought to myself, that's all I want to do because I want to continue my uh, suspended dips. Because if you, if, you, if you know about going to the gym, you know, and you've got the dip bars, um, or if you use a chair and do dips, they can be quite hard, but once you get used to them, you know, it's a good exercise for your tries and, and you can sort of build up to being able to do quite a lot of dips quite quickly. So you build yourself up. If you're quite good at dips and then you try doing them, say on Olympic rings, or, you know, you can't really do them on TRX, but if you do suspended dips, it's a completely different ball game altogether. So I thought, ah, that's going to help get over a plateau and build, build more muscle, more strength. So I really wanted to carry on getting into it. Um, so yeah, made puts these plastic handles on a bit of rope, and I thought if I hang it up and make it like a TRX, you're going to hunch up as you try and do a dip because it's at a fixed point. So I made two separate ones: one bit of rope hanging down with a plastic handle on, and then a separate bit of rope with a plastic handle on. So then I could use them like Olympic rings. So and that's where the idea started, you know, coming to life and where it was born almost. Now. How this came about with the two separate straps with the multiple handles on is the, the rope that I was using with the plastic handle, the rope carried on going down to the ground. So as I was finishing my exercises doing the dips, sort of mid-height exercises, yeah. I thought, well, if I just tie a knot in the bottom of the rope so I can then jump down and start doing um, suspended press-ups. So then it's almost like I'm getting a fuller workout. It's more of a circuit. More of a circuit. And that's where the idea was born. And it eventually evolved into something that we've got patented because the handles aren't fixed like they were on that old rope version. Um, they actually move up and down on, on the strap and they self-lock. As soon as you put pressure on them, they self-lock. You press the button to move them downwards and you can position them instantly wherever you want on, on the strap. Get it set up. The full version has got um, three handles on each side, and so you can position the low ones for whatever height you want for press ups, the middle ones for whatever mid exercise, and the top ones for pull ups, you know, leg raises, yeah. whatever it is you want to do. So you can effectively set it up how you want and do a full circuit training on it without having to t um, touch or adjust um, any of the, the anchor points. So you at the minute, this is you're referring to this as SF1. The SF1, yeah. SF1. I, so I can say from personal experience, you very kindly um, gave me a set of this. Yeah. 
And I've always loved suspension training. So outside of even talking about this now, I can, I can personally vouch for the fact that some of the things that I was always frustrated by by suspension trainers, one is that stereotypically a, a, a TRX will have a singular anchor point. Yep. And I didn't like that because if you are trying to do, say, for example, a press up, you've got the straps rubbing across your body. Yep. It's not representing the width of your body. It will change depending on everybody. So that's the first thing I've always liked was that years ago, I used to use a suspension trainer, I think we said Body for Life or something similar, long gone. Okay. where you, it was two separate points. So that was the first thing I thought, well, that was great. But I could only yeah. ever find that in this one model. The next thing is if you're using it intentionally, if you can, you know, if you're using this, for example, to, to add muscle, it's important to know how many reps you've done of something, but at the same time, it's important to know the angle that you're at yeah. and the positions of your hands. And of course, look, perfect. You've actually marked the fabric with numbers. So if you're that way inclined, if you've got your notebook or your working log, you can write in there exactly where the handles were. The, the, the handle placement now can be tracked with every every handle on the on, the, on each set, which yeah. I think is fantastic. The fact that this, this locks into place does not budge. There's no movement at all in that when you hang on for this thing. Yeah. And the fact that you've got multiple handles, I ge I'm, I'm genuinely excited about this, and you're not getting mine back. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what history you've got. You'll have to do a lot to try and get myself me again. Uh, I, I cannot emphasize how effective these are. And I'm so glad that you're in a position now to go loud about this, yeah. to show the world about SF1, because this is, this is the new generation of suspension training. And I'm not overselling this for you, because you know, I'm oh, going to have a, yeah, this, no, this truly right. is yeah. what should have been done 10 years ago with suspension training. Yeah. And I think it covers those bases that, you know, the separate anchor points, the fact that you can track your progress, the fact that you can move the handles up and use the same set I, I'm, I, I've been using it in circulating between four or five exercises per, yeah. per circuit. I don't have to do anything else other than move the handles, which takes mere seconds. It's absolutely fantastic. So we, We've got, there's so much more exciting things to come out from this because we've, we're, we're already on the innovating track, if you like, because yeah. we don't want to stall after, after we launch. The Mark II is already um, on, on the drawing board, which, um, you know, would, uh, I say Mark II, but, um, uh, you know, we've, we've got a product range sure. already in mind. Um, the the customization of this as well, and the um, the ability to be able to uh, to change it. You can condense this down to just having um, two handles on each side or just one handle. So it it, it even can sort of compete with just a, a, in a TRX fashion, and it can be as light and as mobile as a TRX if you so choose it to be. Um, but similarly, if you've got it hung up on um, in the gym or a pull-up bar that you've got at home, yeah. you can have the full allocation of all three handles where you can do full circuit training without having to touch it. But it, it, it will still condense down to a lighter version. The handles, you know, you can just slip straight off the bottom. Yeah. Um, there is even, without saying too much, uh, won't be involved in the first, um, in the first uh, batches that get sold. It's still slightly in development, um, but we've got a an attachment that will go with this that turns each side into its own trainer, and it almost turns it into exactly like what you get from a TRX, a single fixed point yeah. trainer. So you could buy one product, and if you wanted to train with a partner, then you put it into um, into that mode with the attachment that will come with it, and it turns one trainer into two trainers. I think it's amazing. I, and I'm genuine, look, I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for this journey ahead of you because this, I can see this being a great success. Um, 
If, if people now, I appreciate so we're, we're on an early launch status, so to speak. You know, this is fully developed, this is ready to go. Yes. Um, in, the, in the short term, it's going to be something that will be available. So, just in closing, because I know we've got to close this up, we'll make another video. Where could somebody find this in the future? So, we've, the website is still um, the having the finishing touches put on it. Um, the social pages will be up and running, or yeah. are up and running, sorry. So, SF1 Strength. Is, is where you'll find us. Okay, so people search for SF1 Strength SF1 on strength. social media, yep. they should be able to hunt you out. Exactly, we'll have all the links on there, um, you can get further information and that will be the starting point to find out um, what we've got going on. Oh, it's fantastic. Look, Tony, there's so much we didn't talk about. I will take full responsibility for that because the battery's now about to go dead. <laughs> um, I can feel Dave's eyes piercing into me. Um, let's make another video. If anyone's been watching this and it's something that they want to hear more of, we'll, we'll make another video. We'll talk more about this. I'd yep. love to delve a little bit more into some of the things just as you're leaving at the SBS. Yep. But for now, thank you so very much. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you. No, thank you for, for having me. No, it's, it's, been, it's been great. This is, this is episode one and this was Tony Hayes.